Switch over to the other uh, slide there. Or else this one isn't going to work. Go ahead and give it a click for me. Nope. Technology, you got to love it. Go ahead and just click the screen for me. The, on the slideshow. Did it freeze? There we go. Yeah, this is Amy and I's wedding date, July 22nd, 2005. And you can see we're just little kids. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was 20 and she was 19. I remember uh, this past July, we, we, that means we celebrated 18 years together, uh, which is hard to believe. There were some, uh, some in my family that doubted we'd make it past one, um, and others were much more optimistic and supporting. Uh, but there were a lot of people I remember when I told them that uh, I was going to get married on my side of the family specifically that just thought we were fools and that uh, it would never work out. Um, and here we are 18 years later, thanks to the Lord. Um, there, there's a reality that, that I, as I was preparing for this morning, you know, getting married at that age used to be kind of normal, right? In fact, I found some statistics that back in the 1980s, individuals were married by the age of 21 was 33% of marriages, by uh, 2021, statistics show that only 6% of marriages are by the age 21. Married by 25, that increases double in the 80s to 66%. Today, married by 25 is 22% of the population. The average age in the 1980s for a male was 25 and for a female was 22 and today that average has gone up to males being 30 and females being 28 on average. There's a lot that goes into that, and we're not going to unpack all of that this morning. But as a young man, I, I thought I knew exactly what marriage was going to be like. Now, again, like I said, I got married when I was 20. I was also not raised in a Christian home, so I had a lot of expectations of what marriage was going to look like based on my upbringing. And Amy had a lot of expectations on me of what it was supposed to look like being married. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I had this picture in my mind of what marriage was going to look like. And it didn't take long for reality to set in that marriage takes work. Marriage is hard work. Now, don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that marriage is miserable work, although sometimes hard work is miserable. Marriage takes hard work, but it's God's work and it's good work, even in the difficulties. You do the hard work because you love one another. You love each other. You've made a commitment to the other person, to your spouse, to love them no matter what. And what I learned quickly is that not every day is going to be rainbows and butterflies in your marriage. There's going to be days where it feels like you're hiking through mud and flip-flops and hoping you don't lose one. But I'm grateful that even though we've hiked through all the mud in our flip-flops, Amy still loves me. You, you do still love me, right? 
Yeah? Okay. okay. Listen, like, marriage is hard. It just is, and, and there's realities to it, and we live in a day where even in the church, divorce is just the same as outside of the church, and we're called to be different. Marriage is hard work, and, and we ought to tell our young people, listen, marriage is hard work. <laughs> it's not what you see in the movies. It's not what you see on TV. It takes work. This morning, we're going to continue reading through Judges, and we've been in Judges 14. Last week, we, we started uh, part one of chapter 14. And we focused more on, you know, kind of these application points that I saw last week. This week, we're going we're gonna to restart at ch- uh, chapter 14, verse 1, and take more of a, a different approach this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open them. There are some scattered around the room if you don't have one this morning. Um, check a chair. There might be one there for you. Let's pray with the word open. Heavenly Father, Lord, I uh, come before you this morning with your word open. We, we all do. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would give us ears to hear you and what you would have to say to us this morning. Lord, I admit that uh, I'm a little bit tired this morning, and and I feel like I'm struggling and tripping over words. So, Lord, I I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give me everything I need this morning to preach the word you've given me to preach. Lord, that you would sustain you. You are sovereign over all things, and we trust you. But, Lord, most of all, I want your word to transform us from the inside out. I want want all who hear and receive the word this morning in a posture of worship to be transformed. So, Lord, only you can do that. Only you can take something that's hard as a rock and transform it into something soft and supple. So, Lord, we, we ask that you do what only you can do. Speak through your word and give us ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read in my English Standard Version. You can follow along in yours. We're going to start, we're going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14 of Judges. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of, the, of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that this, is, that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked to the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. He, returned, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them 
that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. And you have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days of their feast, that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. There's a lot here, and and admittedly, I, I wrestled with the text a lot this week on trying to uh, pare down what God is trying to speak to us this morning. But just to kind of recap, we, we, we see that Samson has set his eyes on a beautiful young lady. Right? We, we went over this last week. We're like, woo, baby, I want that one, right? Like he, he sees this young Philistine and he's like in lustfulness after her. He sets his eyes on her and he wants to marry her. The only problem is she's a Philistine woman. She's not an Israelite woman. And last week, we focused on desires and temptations and the attacks that we face and and how to be prepared for those. But today, we're going to look more closely at what we see here with Samson's marriage and lessons that we can learn. Now, for those of us who are not married or been previously married or single or whatever the case may be, there is still application. So I hope you'll pay attention and not fall asleep on me. We're going to look closely at Samson's marriage and what scripture and what God has to reveal to us through this. Now, before we move on, I I, I do feel it's appropriate that we must address a false teaching that comes from this passage of scripture. And that's the resistance uh, for Samson to marry the Philistine woman. Some will take this passage, along with Old Testament scripture, uh, to forbid interracial marriage. And some churches have abused that. And to be fair, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 does say, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And he's specifically telling the Israelites as they come into the land of Canaan that they're not to intermarry with the Philistines and the Canaanites and all of them. 
And so some make the argument that this is God's will to not allow inter, uh, interracial marriage. But if we look closer at the very next verse, we see why God gives this command. He says, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The wisdom was and is the same for believers today. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 The issue is not about interracial marriage, rather about being led astray by the unbelieving partner. That's what it's about. That's God's heart, because God, God knows the, what, uh, what marriage is all about, because he is the one who created it. And he knows what it means when two become one. And, and, and when one's not on the same page with the Lord as the other, there's a temptation to be drawn away. And so we just need to set the table here that uh, this is not in that false teaching that God forbids interracial marriage. That being said, I also felt appropriate to talk about what ancient Jewish marriage looked like. And I will admit I'm not a uh, historian. I'm not, I'm not perfect at understanding all this. So in my research, what I've gathered is that, a, that the traditions of marriage in the Jewish culture in this time uh, looked a little bit like this, where it had three steps. And the first step they called the shadukin which was a mutual commitment or agreement. And so this was the very first foundational uh, agreement between the, the bride and the groom, where the parent, the father of the, the groom would set the arrangement up. I remember it was arranged marriages most of the time, uh, often for alliances and, and all of that. But uh, the very first step would be this mutual commitment or agreement to marry one another. There would be an official like reading of this commitment. At this point, at this stage, the two are married legally by this commitment. As soon as this commitment's made, the next step endures, which is the erusin, which is an engagement period of about a year or less. See, what would happen is that the, the groom, after the contract had been signed, after the agreement, the covenant had been made to marry the, the bride, the groom goes back home to his father's house to prepare a room for his bride. Meanwhile, the bride is, is, goes back to her father's house and starts preparing herself, making many lamps and uh, oil lamps because typically the 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 custom would be that the, the groom would come at night in a procession to get his bride. And so she had to have lamps ready. Um, and even though they knew that it was about a year, they really didn't know what day the groom was going to come get the bride. And so the, the husband would go, or the, the groom would go uh, prepare a place in his father's house and that might take a full year or more. It might take a little bit less. And then when the, the groom was ready to get his bride, he would gather all his men, grab a horn, 
and they'd go celebrate on the way down, and they'd blow the trumpet, and they, they, would, they would be hooping and hollering and, and, and letting the bride know they're coming. To which, when she hears the horns and the celebration, I'm sure, I mean, I wasn't the bride, I was the groom, so I, I can't speak on that exactly what that feeling might have been, but ladies, you probably do. A level of anticipation, he's coming. And then they, he would get there, and, and, and then they would have this, this marriage festival that would last for seven days, the Nis- Nisuin And it was a seven-day festival, a feast, that would end with the consummation of the marriage, which would then finalize their marriage. This entire process, they're married. But until the consummation, it's not officially official, if you understand what I'm saying. So we see here with Samson, we see this take place in this chapter. We see that Samson went down to Timnah, sees one of the daughters, falls in love with her, so he thinks more falls in lust with her and tells his dad, I found a woman I want to marry. Now go get her for me. And we see in verse 5 that Samson went down with his father to Timnah and they came to the vineyards and then they went down, talked to the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. This would have been that first commitment, that agreement right? Because the father's now there, and they're making that first contact with the woman and her family, and they've made this agreement. And then we see in verse 8, it says, after some days. The language here in, in, in the Hebrew can be years. It, it, it's, it's, it's general time. Uh, it's, it's translated some days here, but it, it could literally have been a full year for all we know. In fact, if, if we want to look at the context here, uh, has anybody been a beekeeper? Anybody know how long it takes for a new beehive to make honeycomb to where you can harvest it? About a year. It's usually the second season to where they've made enough honeycomb to make honey to be harvested. So if we look at the literal context here, we see that after some days, he returns and turns aside to scrape out honey from the lion that he killed. So if we take this literal with that understanding, it's been about a year that he's been before he comes to get this honey. So that would be this this engagement period that we see here. And so where, where we pick up today and in verse 10, we see that the father goes down to the woman and Samson prepares a feast there. The word feast in Hebrew that's used here is mishta, which denotes a feast that especially includes alcohol. Now who remembers one of the Nazarite vows? No alcohol, no strong drink. And here Samson's preparing a feast that specifically by Hebrew definition includes alcohol. He's already touched the dead carcass. We don't know for certain whether or not he partakes in the drinking of the alcohol, but it wouldn't be out of bounds to believe he has. So he prepares this feast 
And in the middle of this feast, in the merriment, right, we see that uh, the Philistine people see. And the other odd thing is, is that Samson doesn't come with his own men. It's just him. And so they see him show up, and they're like, wow, we got, we got some people we can give you, some buddies. We'll, we'll, we'll give you a, a party that you deserve, and we're going to bring you 30 guys. So he, they're drinking, they're having fun, they're, they're, they're at this feast, which weddings are fun, typically speaking. <laughs> they're typically fun to hang out with, but, you know, things get a little out of hand when people start drinking at weddings. And I think in the context here, we see some of that. We see Samson give these men this riddle and this wager and we see, he says, let me, let me put this riddle to you. And if you can find it out, then I owe you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And if you cannot tell me what it is, you owe me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. The linen garments here would have been equivalent to like a nightgown or a sheet. Changes of clothes literally means like a fine suit. Think about this. Samson's saying, I'm willing to wager you don't know the answer to this riddle I'm about to give you, so much so that I'm willing to put up 30 fine suits and 30 sheets or 30 nightgowns. Now, to put this in context, I recently, Amy and I were recently shopping. We were at the mall, and we went into JCPenney's, and, and uh, I, I said, I'm going to go to the guy's section. You know, I, I realize in this line of work, there's often a time that calls for a nice suit jacket. Yes, I wear suit jackets and I wear ties. I know you don't see me often in that, but yes, I have them. I own them. The suit jacket that I have, though, um, is, is not of the greatest quality um, because suits are expensive. Um, so I, I, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go look, and, and I'm looking for, for where the suits are, and I happen to see a suit, and I'm like, there they are. <laughs> What's even better, I see a yellow sticker above one of them, and I've been trained right by my wife to go, that's where I'm supposed to look. So I get up to the rack, and I'm, and I'm looking at these, uh, these suits, and then quickly I go from this to this. $300 for a jacket on clearance, I just can't, I can't justify. But this, this helps us to understand that, like, this is what the wager is. Samson is, is claiming fine clothes, that would have been expensive to, to have. Now for them, there's 30 of them. So, so Samson's probably thinking he's going to take their fine suits off their back. Because what do you wear to a wedding? You wear nice clothes to a wedding. So he's basically wagering the clothes off their back from them. Trusting his riddle so good, he's not going to have to fulfill his end of the bargain. I think this also reveals you know, that he has a, a very high level of confidence or maybe arrogance in his riddle. But it does show us his intellect. Because in my, um, 
understanding. And in my study, we find out that this riddle is actually the best example of a riddle in all of Scripture. So that shows that Samson's not just all brawn, right? Like, he's not just a meathead. He's got, he's got smarts, too. So he gives this, this, this riddle to the men, and we see that after three days, they get frustrated, and they can't figure out this riddle. It's that good. I like riddles. I, I like uh, the kids like to tell riddles and jokes and things like that, and they get frustrated because I often figure them out. But man, when I can't figure it out, boy, do they hoop and holler. <laughs> we got you. But these men start becoming desperate because they realize the, the weightiness of the bet that they've made. We see that they become so desperate that on the fourth day they say to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us the riddle, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Now, I do want to just note that depending on what translation of scripture you are reading from, if you're reading the King James Version, this will say seventh day, not fourth day. Uh, and as far as I could tell in all of the different translations that I read, King James is the only one that translates it as seventh day here. All the rest that I found translate it as fourth day. When I go to the original language, it does say seventh day in the Hebrew. So I, I had to wrestle with that. I said, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, when I, I'm going to read from my English Standard Version study notes that somebody wrote. I should have looked up that and given credit where it's due. I don't have that right now, but it says this, the Hebrew text has seventh day. The ESV reading is based on Greek and Syriac versions. The difference is only one letter in Hebrew, which could have easily been miscopied by a scribe in an early manuscript. When we look at the context, fourth fits better with immediate context, with verse 14 mentioning three days. So that's why the ESV and other translations will translate fourth day here. But if you're reading out of the, the King James, it will say seventh day. So I just thought I'd, I would clear the air with that. In any regard, the, it's been a few days in. And the men are getting desperate because they cannot figure out this riddle. And what I notice here is that, remember, they're technically married this woman and Samson, they're married. And she gets threatened by her own relatives. The very first test of her marriage came for her own people. They say, you better find out the answer to this. Have you brought us here to become poor? If you don't give us the answer, we're going to burn your, your father's house with you in it. And the first test of marriage comes from her own people. Now, maybe she wants to protect her dad. Maybe, maybe she doesn't know if Samson can protect her um, and her father from these 30 men. Because after all, there's 30 of them and only one Samson. She certainly doesn't know God and therefore can't place her trust in him. So she responds... By manipulating Samson for the answer. 
most likely to save her life and her father's life. The text reads that Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. The word wept here means to bewail, to cry, to shed tears, to lament, to embrace and weep. And we were told later that she does this for seven days, for basically the entirety of the feast. She's clinging to him and weeping and crying and weeping and crying. And he says, I haven't even told my own parents. Like, I've not brought anybody into this. Why should I tell you? We see that uh, she pressed him hard. This means that she constrained him to press, to bring into straits. She oppresses him. There's many ways in a marriage to communicate. This isn't one of them. Manipulation, emotional manipulation, that is not God's design for the marriage. And sadly, in the world today, we see a lot of this. I mean, if, you, if you've ever watched anything like uh, The Real Housewives or, or any of that kind of TV, you see it happen. But this kind of manipulation is not called for. It's based out of fear that she has for herself and her father's house. And it all goes back to the reality that she's not an Israelite. She doesn't have the knowledge of Yahweh. She doesn't know that the Lord will protect her. And so she does what she only knows how to do is to get the answer. She, does, she pulls out all the stops. And she presses him hard. And it doesn't matter how strong your muscles are. When you have a crying wife and an emotional wife in your, in your arms and, and clinging to you and manipulating you, it doesn't matter how strong you are. At some point, you break. And we see that happen with Samson. So he finally gives in and tells her the answer to the riddle, which she immediately goes and tells her family. And they give him the answer. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. This is a graphic, crude reference to how they manipulated her with the threats. And we see immediately that uh, right after they had given the answer, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was then given to his companion who had been his best man. And we might read here and go, why? Hey, why? What is this story here for? Why, why did all of this happen the way that it happened? Why, why, Lord? Like, what is this here for? Well, as my lovely wife pointed out last week, she said, you didn't, you didn't read verse 4 today. And I said, that's all right, I, I know. <laughs> if we back up to Judges 14, verse 4, 
we see his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Which brings us to one of our points in closing, is that God is sovereign. We don't always understand his ways. And even in our disobedience, he can and often does accomplish his own will. We don't always get to know why. We don't get to know why it turns out the way that it does. But God is sovereign. He has a plan. He has a will. He has a will for your life. He has a will for your marriage. And, and uh, when we are obedient to that, uh, typically speaking, things go a little bit better than when we're not obedient to those things. And whether we're obedient or, or not, God's will is going to be accomplished. And then this brought me to what I believe to be the most important truth about marriage, that if we understand this, we'll understand why the problems existed here in Samson's marriage. I'm going to read from Genesis 2:24 and Mark 10, 6 through 9. The two become one. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus says it this way in, in Mark 10.69. You could also find this in Matthew 19. I'm reading from the Mark 10 version. But from the beginning, this is Jesus speaking, that's why I put it in red. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Two become one. This means that when a man and a woman make the covenant of marriage, they're making a commitment that no matter what comes, they're committing to be one flesh. Sorry, guys, that, that means that uh, she's not going to be perfect in every single way. Ladies, that means he's going to be flawed in some ways. We saw statistics earlier on about how long the generation is waiting to become married. And I, and I think it's because the young people are being taught that they need to get their life in order before they get married. They need, they need to accomplish all of these things and then get married. I have a brother who is in that boat. I'm like, dude, when are you just, you're already engaged, just get married. I'm trying to get everything in order first. We have a generation that's that that uh, you know, and it's been generations at this point that are waiting for Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect to come along. And they don't understand that the process of becoming one flesh is the very thing that's important. So what does it mean to become one? 
Well, that means that there is no longer yours and mine. It means ours. It means that there's no longer your check account and, your, and my check account. It's ours. In everything... had the opportunity to counsel somebody recently who's, who's married and, and they have separate checking accounts. I said, buddy, you gotta, you gotta understand that you gotta come together. You two become one in every aspect of the marriage. And yeah, it's hard work. It's hard to do that. I believe that one of the most challenging things is that our young people are being told to, to focus on their own personal achievement, to get, specific, to get to a specific point of security, accomplishment, or acceptance on, all on their own before they believe they can get married. Well, that takes a lot of time, and we're seeing it translate. The challenge then, though, becomes that I've got my life in order. I've got all these things that I've accomplished and all these things, this security that I like, and, and I like things my way. And if I get married, I've got to give all that up. I've got to relearn what it looks like to live with somebody. Which creates this idea that it has to be the right somebody, it has to be the perfect somebody that fits into my life. When Scripture makes it very clear we let go of this family, we let go of this, and we come together as one. There's a lot of things I had to learn as a 20-year-old being married. But it was in the process, in the struggle with a committed spouse, in the same situation, where we learned how to do it together as one. So much so that if the Lord called her home and took her home, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> In a lot of different areas of our marriage. And the same would be true for her. The longer we've been married, the more we've become like each other. I used to be the big spender in the marriage. She used to be the frivolous penny pincher. Now I go to the store with, with my own spending money, my own allowance money, and I go, ooh, I, want, I, can't, I can't get myself to buy that right now. And I get frustrated by that. Because I used to be the guy that would go in the store no matter, even if I didn't have the money and just buy it. Because I was an impulse spender. In the same way, I've rubbed off on Amy. I wish a little more of me would rub off on Amy <laughs> sometimes. But she keeps us grounded. And I keep her grounded because we've decided to come together as one. And we've made that our priority. And I think what we see in Samson's marriage here is there was never really a commitment for the two to become one. And part of that was she didn't know God and that was God's warning all along. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you this morning. Thank you for my friends who love you, desire to be more like you. Lord, help us as we leave this place to take what we've received from you and wrestle with it, Lord. Help us to wrestle and, and, and allow you to speak to us, to be transformed from the inside out. Only you can do that, Lord. We, we don't have the power to change ourselves. Only you can change us. But Lord, we want to be changed by the truth of your word. We want, to, we want to be changed more into your son's image. So Lord, the only way to do that is by being in your word, being in fellowship with other believers, spending time with you in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your mission to be living our lives seven days a week, 365 days a year, focused on you, going into our spheres of influence and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Jesus, we need you. Help us trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.